The views expressed by guests are their own and do not necessarily reflect the views of Skillsoft. Welcome to The Edge, a Skillsoft podcast for learners and leaders alike. In every episode, we engage in candid, thought-provoking conversation on the topic of learning and growth in the workplace. And oh, are we going to get candid today? In fact, we're going to be vulnerable. We're going to get real. And hopefully, we're going to have a little bit of a laugh too. Now, vulnerability is something that we often shy away from in the workplace. I think we we fear that when we open ourselves up, we're going to be perceived as weak. And that when we pull back the curtain and display our vulnerabilities, others might not see strength. But instead of viewing vulnerabilities in a negative light, can can we start to shift instead to focus on what is possible when we reveal our true, authentic selves? You know, I wrote about this in a recent Medium article, but a few weeks ago, I was on a run when a song came onto my playlist that made me stop. And please don't judge, it is an oldie. Who are you by the who? And lately, I've been giving myself the grace to pause and reflect on that very real question. It's something that I have long grappled with. You know, we as humans are multifaceted, and I'm not sure it's possible nor fair to put ourselves into a box and characterize ourselves as just one thing. Yeah, I'm a marketer, but guess what? I'm also a mother, an athlete, a dog lover, and there are a lot of aspects of myself that I've kept hidden for a very long time and only recently have I felt comfortable bringing them to light. Now, beyond my love of dystopian novels, and I highly recommend Max Berry if you haven't read his work, if I pull back the curtain just a little bit further, I will admit that despite professional successes, I suffer from imposter syndrome. I suffer from anxiety. And for a very long time, I was incredibly self-conscious. So as I ran with the hoop playing in my ear, I had a revelation. Some of these hidden characteristics, the things that I don't love about myself, the things that are most authentically me, are also the very same things that help me spur creativity, passion and drive. So why is it sometimes that we feel the need to be someone else, to have or live up to this unreal expectation that others have of us? I mean, we we all do it, right? We want to put on the absolute best face possible so nobody thinks any less of us. And it can be all too easy to project a version of ourselves that's only a partial view of who we really are. You know, over the past century, we have undergone several revolutions, many successful revolutions, I might add, from the industrial to the technical to now the digital age. But today's guest is going to tell us that it is time for a human revolution. We need to be human first, resilient, embracing our authenticity. So today I am thrilled to welcome someone you might be familiar with if you joined us at this year's Perspectives Unleashed. Known as the British Oprah, Jazz Ampar Fa is an international TEDx speaker, thought leader, author, and my favorite, she's a resilience ninja. Through her work, Jazz seeks to help others drive change, embed ambitious resilience, and increase their impact. And I think it's fair to say that working with Jazz leaves a mark. Highly regarded for her work and impact on the education and health sectors where she's inspired and galvanized change. Jazz is now a sought-after keynote who has spoken all over the world and worked with numerous organizations, including Skillsoft, but also with the Marketing Society, 
Gucci, Red, the Festival of Media, and the BBC. And so I could not be more grateful to have Jazz here today as we talk about her concept of a human-first revolution, finding and celebrating everyday heroes, and being our authentic and true selves. Jazz, welcome to The Edge. Thank you so much for joining me today. Oh, it's great to be here. Thank you. Well, you know, I I gave everybody an introduction. Um, You joined us at this year's Perspectives. And in your session, which, by the way, available on skillsoft.com slash Perspectives 2021, I have to get that piece out of the way. Um, (laughs) You spoke about balancing life and work in the digital age, and you touched on how to create your own personal impact roadmap for acknowledging your value, overcoming adversity, and focusing on what you can control, which was really helpful. So again, I really encourage people to go watch but, you know, in, in opening up today, I'm not really sure that I did you justice. And so for that, I apologize. So I'd love for you to share a little bit more about yourself and perhaps something that, you know, one can't just read in a standard bio. Okay. Well, I'm a world-class reframer is how um, my son <laughs> describes me. <laughs> so I'm, I'm going to get business cards with that on. But um. I'm really like committed to getting every bit of value out of life that I can because I spent a lot of time not living like that. I spent a lot of time in a prison of my own making where there's like two bars at the window, holographic bars. They were my own kind of imagination. And the bars were, I'm not good enough and people like me don't do things like that. So I have tried living miserable and it sucks. I have tried that. And I, and I think, and that came from kind of very early embedded. I grew up like in foster care. I lived, my parents were alcoholics and, and we were in and out of, of foster care. We were abused. We, you know, by the time I was sort of eight, I'd been stealing food to feed my brothers and sisters. I was like a parent to my younger siblings. I, I you know, I was broken. I was a broken child. And it was only the people, um, adults, who mine happened to be at school, who were able to connect with me, stand with me, do witness, not do things to me or for me, but do things with me and, and value me rather than rescue me. That kind of set, that interrupted the trajectory and set this new kind of pathway for a new story. It's not, I'm not making it out that it's been easy, but I am, I feel like really lucky to be able to reframe in the way I do so that when adversity and challenge comes and it comes and when it does come I'm able to reset and and I think the thing that I am most proud of and and who I am at my heart is that I can pivot reframe and go again it doesn't matter how bad it is I can do that and that is that that's the most amazing thing about my life I think yeah. Okay, so for our listeners out there, I told you that we were going to get vulnerable <laughs> and real. And I think that's about right. as real as you can get. And look, you know, Jazz, in preparation for this conversation, I did watch your TED Talk. And I'd watched it before when you were um, joining us for Perspectives. But I wanted to watch it again, The Power of Everyday Heroes, which has more than 100,000 views on YouTube, everyone. And so I feel obligated right now to take a moment to thank publicly my science teacher, Mr. Asher, who treated me with incredible kindness and respect. And he helped me through a really tough life transition, even as I struggled in his physics class. Um, But but truly, everyone, no, a a big thanks to Tom Asher. Um, Everyone, this is a must watch. It it moved me to tears. And just as I reflect on on what you shared, I, I can't help but wonder how many people are on a similar 
and Mm. very real journey, working to repair some damage to their sense of self. So for those of Mm. you who haven't watched it uh, yet, and I think this would be helpful, Jazz, maybe you can take us through this idea of everyday heroes and your concept of being 10% braver. And just so you know, everyone out there, um, Jazz is wearing a shirt that says (laughs) 10% braver, which I am sure she's got a store for because I, I need one of those. Well, these became my uniform during the pandemic because I couldn't speak out in places. So, so I just got myself a load of like jazzisms on stage. And actually people ask for these. So I yes. do have them in a shop now. <laughs> okay. So we will put the link for everybody who wants it. We will put the link to the shop. But, but you know, but take us, take us through what that means. Yeah. Well, the, the whole thing about being everyday heroes and the, the link to being braver, 10% braver, which is like the tiniest bit. It's not you know, starting a revolution yet, but it's just being a tiny bit braver than you were yesterday, is that like, there's a difference between bravery and courage. So courage is embedded, like firefighters are courageous. They're running towards the burning building. We're running in the opposite direction. That is courage. That is rehearsed. That's intentional. That is practiced. That's not bravery. Bravery is when you are terrified and you still choose to take the first step. And and that, after a while, burns itself into courage. So it's the idea of how do we take those tiny steps when we're in a toxic relationship, when we, we're in a job that we hate, when we're, we're struggling to, to apply, we want to get promoted, but we feel like we're not ticking enough boxes to do it. An imposter syndrome kind of sets in like some vulnerability vulture on your shoulder, digging our claws in saying you're not good enough. How do you become 10% braver? And for me, it's it's always been about that the ability of people to come and light a fire in you rather than underneath you. It's like having someone else who can stand with you. There was a, I read a book and it was about the SAS. Um, I don't know. Is that a thing? SAS, is that British or American? I don't know. But uh, it, the training for it is, it's like the Marines. The training right. is really grueling, like really grueling. And there was a story about a guy who was training and he was swimming, like he'd been swimming, swimming an ocean, I don't know. And his mate had made it. And he was so, he was so cold and he couldn't breathe. And he was just like, I've got to give up. I can't do it. I'm going to die. And he looked up and saw his friend go, come on. And he carried on. He found the strength to carry on going. And you know that when you've got nothing left, someone else can stand with you and believe in you and suddenly you have more. That's the idea of an everyday hero. But the quintessential thing about it is that it doesn't take a lot. Like for me, it was people, I I didn't get like smiled at at home. I wasn't spoken to like a person. I was treated like a second class citizen. So when I would come into school and my geography teacher would see me in the late corridor, I was like late every day because I was taking my brothers to school and school started at the same time. Um, he, I'd come in and, and he'd go, all right. And, I, and at first I'd be like, what's wrong with you? What are you talking to me for? Because I couldn't take the kindness. But when someone does that every day for five years, it melts the ice around your heart. So it's this idea of just the tiniest things we do making the biggest difference to people's lives. It's it's not revolutionary. It's it's meeting people where they are. It's standing with it's withness. And and I, I feel like this is so available to us. Like checking in, checking with people who've got daughters who are very, you know, who, like my daughter who's got who's got a strong personality. We're not okay most of the time. You know, it's just like checking in with our friends, checking in with people, especially during this time, you don't know what's going on in people's lives. And we always assume everybody is 
you know, doing great. And when we compare our backstage with everyone else's front stage, we start comparing ourselves. And it's, it's just, it's a story. It's just a story. And that gets broken by people standing on the truth about who you are when you can't do it yourself. You know, um, that is so powerful. And I, I talked about this a little bit in the opening, this idea of imposter syndrome and doubting that we have what it takes. And I look at you and I'm like, oh my God, she's got it all together. And I feel like such an imposter. And I've talked about this recently because it's something that I've had to personally tackle, mm. this feeling of self-doubt yeah. or personal incompetence of thinking that we don't belong or we're not enough, despite the fact that, let's face it, we know we're skilled. We are accomplished. And you know, look, I will say this to people who are listening. If you've ever experienced these feelings, and I know you have, you're not alone. Um, mm. The American Psychological Association reports that more than 80%, 80% of people experience imposter syndrome. And I think if we look at its impact in the workplace, Jazz, mm. we know that it can lead to career burnout, less risk-taking, and increased yeah. anxiety and depression. So is this a point at which we need to be just 10% braver or perhaps also 10% kinder to ourselves. Because I feel yes. like so many people from, from whether you're a rising leader or C-suite, you, you know, everybody's feeling like they're, they're not good enough. So I think mm. we need your help. I need your help. Just how do we recognize <laughs> that worth in ourselves? Yeah, that's, that's so good. Because I think it's like when we go to a party, the first thing we do is we say what we, I'm jazz and I do, we say what we do. We're so addicted to achievement that we, we count our value as what mm -hmm. we can be, we can do as productive. And it, it just leads to so much stress. And, and I think one of the things like I've, I've been crippled by imposter syndrome in the past. Mm -hmm. And I remember being in Rome, I'd been, I'd been flown to Rome to do a talk. And I'm in this amazing hotel with like, it's got a view of the Vatican and it, all of it is just making me feel worse. And I'm thinking, I start thinking, I've got no, I can't say I've got nothing. <laughs> I should not be here. I don't know what to do. And I remember before I'd like seen the host and I'd said, oh my gosh, I can't, I can't do this. You've made a mistake. This is a bad idea. And he said, oh, you've got imposter syndrome. And I said, no, it's not a syndrome if you're actually an imposter. I, I genuinely <laughs> cannot do this. He's like, I am fascinated. And I remember thinking, what would it look like? What would it feel like if I could just believe what he believes about me for a, for a minute? Because I felt like I was going to spontaneously combust. He's, he's flown me across the world. He believes in my, what I can do. How about I not, I don't tell him that he's made a bad choice and I believe what he believes for one minute. And I made myself a cup of tea, which is the British cure for everything. So I made myself a cup of tea. And it felt so good not being anxious. I thought, I'm going to try this again. And it kind of, it, it led to this whole idea of, um, my friend said to me, look, there's two pots. One's got evidence and data, and one's got your own thoughts and feelings. Which one is true? Now, when I ask this, when I do keynotes, most people say, well, thoughts and feelings. But if you think about being in a murder investigation and you've got like this wealth of CCTV and a confession, mm -hmm. you were there, you know, you've got DNA evidence, the victim scrawled the, the name of the murderer in their email address. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you've got all that. And on the other side, you've got Maureen from accounting who says, I think he's a bit dodgy. Which one would you use? As you, <laughs> you know, so, so the thing is, we, we've got this wealth of evidence and data about the truth about who we are what we're capable of, what our track record is. Then we've got our brain saying, oh, you're probably not very good. Don't do it just in case. You've, some, you've got to hack that. You, sometimes you've mm. got to stand on the truth about yourself and not what you think. You've got to go with fact over how you feel a lot of the time. And, and I think that 
kind of almost clinical way of looking at stuff helped me as someone who is very emotive, very empathic, um, help me kind of stand on the the evidence and data and, and just not give way to when I get the feeling of, oh, you shouldn't be doing it. Like this podcast, when I get the feeling of what am I doing here? <laughs> this is amazing. <laughs> Why am I I know, I know the caliber of people you interview, and I'm like, oh, have they got the right jazz on par four? But <laughs> I, I choose to stand on the truth about me, according to you. At this moment, you feel I've got something to offer, and I am going to, I'm going to do me. And it's, it's that. That's what the ten percent braver thing is all the time. It'd be so much oh. easier for me to hide away. Of course, I wanted to. When, when I was doing perspectives, and I saw it was Shaquille O'Neal and, and me on the same list, I was nearly sick in the toilet. <laughs> Literally, I'm like a little bit of sick came up in my throat. I'm like, oh my gosh, I got. <laughs> but I'm like, my brain is a liar. Thoughts and feelings, evidence and data. That is going to go. I'm going to go on this, and that is literally. I'm not. People say, oh, you're so confident. It's not confidence. It's not confidence. I am comfortable with oh. things not working out right because I know how to reframe. And I choose, I choose to believe in the truth about myself rather than my vulnerability vultures constant tirade of how rubbish I am at everything. It's so boring. And I just turn the volume down. So it's really low. And I, I, and I show up and shine. You do. You do. And like, <laughs> so I think, first of all, um, for everyone out there, when you are not feeling 100%, just come back to this podcast because I <laughs> promise you, you're going to feel better. And Jazz, so you know, I, I had to interview Shaquille O'Neal and I thought I was going to vomit, right? But like, <laughs> I was so scared because who am I to interview this man? And he was so generous and so yeah. kind and so truthful in what he shared. And I think one of the things that was really interesting and that we talked about after the interview was that we brought him to talk about something that was really important to him, which was mm. education and the role that it had played throughout his life. We didn't talk about basketball. And I think yeah. because we reframed for him something that he, he cared so much about that people didn't know about him. They didn't yeah. know yeah. that he had a master's. They didn't know he had his PhD in education. And so this was an opportunity for him to share. And I think that's something that often we miss is that people are multifaceted and that we yeah. tend to look at them through one lens. And maybe one of the things that we need to do is show people we're more than just this one thing because then we can connect, right? So so when people know that I absolutely love my dog except when he sits right there on my red couch or when I tell people that I'm an athlete, a broken athlete, but an athlete, there's an opportunity for us to connect in a way that maybe we couldn't have before. And I don't know if this leads into this notion of a human revolution, but I think that when we know each other's humanity, may, yeah. maybe that's where you're going with that. So could you tell us what human revolution is and why it's time? Yeah, it, I mean, it's in short, human revolution is really simply being like professionally vulnerable and personally mm. authentic. Because the other way around, mm -hmm. like personally vulnerable, well, there's a difference between like neediness and basic human needs. But personally vulnerable is where you're not healed and you're sharing in the kind of hope that someone else will be able to make you feel better in uh, some way. And it, you, you've got yeah. to do the work. You've got to participate yeah. in your own, you know, rescue. But um, but professional vulnerability 
it, it means you don't get to work and you say, oh, do you know what? I'm uh, I'm addicted to alcohol and I think I got involved in some human trafficking on the way to work this morning. You don't need to like tell them everything. But there is something around not making out that you've got it all together. Because it, all that, especially as a leader, because all that does is make everyone else feel that they've got to be as good as they think you are, as sorted mm-hmm. as they think you are. And it just puts this huge pressure, like with the pandemic and everyone being on Zoom and everyone covering up their backdrops. Mm-hmm. It's like, oh gosh, I'm sorry I live in a house. I'm sorry I have a cat. <laughs> I'm sorry. You know, stop apologising for taking up space. Just say, We're all in the same boat. You know, we're all in this different storm, but same boat. So, so for me, I kind of feel like we've had like an industrial revolution and that went well. We've had a technical revolution and, you know, that was nice. We've had a digital revolution and I'm so glad to be alive during that time. Mm-hmm. I think what we're missing, I think the next iteration is a human revolution where we mm-hmm. choose, we choose intentionally to see everybody's heart and humanity first. So your human, my, my company is called Human First. So your human first and then, you know, I don't know, an administrator, human first CEO, human first, and then a parent, human first, and then a teacher. It, the humanity is the bit that gets missing because we mm-hmm. all feel like being professional means trading in our humanity. And I don't see how we win if we're not able to be our honest selves. And and my my it's it's like tying it in with well-being. My plan is to turn up as my full fat self in every situation, whether I'm with my kids, at work, on stage meeting a baby, meeting a bishop. I don't care. Full fat jazz, 24-7. That's what I want to do. And I can't do that if I'm constantly trying to be something or someone else. I can show up as me. And if people aren't you know, comfortable with me or don't like mm. me, that's absolutely fine. Let's not work together. You'll be miserable. And other sausages are available. You don't have to hang out with me. So it's, it's about the human revolution is about it's okay not to be okay. And guess what? You are okay anyway. It, you're not broken. None of us are broken. Right. We're just all trying to do the best we can in a place where we feel that we might not be good enough. We might not have what it takes. So what if we what if we stood and said, you know what? This is who I am. This is what I can do. This is what I want to learn. This is where the gaps are. This is what I'm working on. And what if that was just okay, rather than having to be CV perfect all the time? You know, it, it's that it's that question is is what does it mean to be human first? And I think it might mean something slightly different for each other, but I'm just mm. I'm dissatisfied with the way we have to hide parts of who like I, I when I start my business, um, people used to try and like meet me at nine o'clock and I'd say, I'm sorry, I've got a meeting. I didn't have a meeting. I was taking my kids to school. But I thought me saying I'm taking my kids to school makes me look like I shouldn't be in the workplace because I've got kids and I take them to school, which even, even as I'm saying it, is it, it makes me look like a fantastic parent. That's what it makes me look like, who also runs her own business. But I was, I was worried about what other people would think if I wasn't, if I was honest. So I decided not to be honest. So, and, and then because I've got integrity, not being honest, ate away at me. So yeah. then I'm becoming less and less. And it's no human first, everything else second. You know, This notion of kind of accepting our vulnerabilities and accepting who we are, um, embracing it really, which, which yes, it it can be challenging. I think um, this idea of pulling back the curtain can be really, really uncomfortable. You know, our CEO, whom I adore, he shared a note with our entire organization and he said, 
you can't learn if you already know everything. And I loved that because, you know, as leaders, I I feel like we're expected to have all these answers and have them quickly. And so it it goes back to something that that I've talked about with, with other guests on this podcast, the idea that even great leaders have to continue to learn. We can never stop because we don't know everything. And this takes active humility, recognizing that there is still more out there and that it's okay to say, I don't know to something. So, I want to ask, how can we become comfortable, both with ourselves and with other people on our teams, to have that kind of professional vulnerability, to be able to say, Mm. I don't have that answer? Yeah, and I love love how you talk about leadership because it it feels like, it feels counterintuitive sometimes to be a leader and not to know (laughs) because we put this expectation on ourselves, don't we? But the whole thing about a leader is that they set the tone, you know, they set yeah. the culture. And when you're in a team, you, you need to have like, you need to know yourself in order to lead yourself. But when you bring in the team element, we've, we need a team that is like in sync with each other and able mm-hmm. to, to hear and move around and, and know what it's like on the other side of themselves so that they can connect with each other. But if we're all uncomfortable in the idea of, well, what if I don't know, what will they say? Mm -hmm. That actually gets in the way. And productivity-wise, we are missing out because people don't feel that they can, you know, show up as themselves. So when you're in a team, it's really hard because there's a level of vulnerability that you're sharing. But if everybody is is trying to do the same thing. If everybody is giving a little bit of themselves to each other, it feels like you've got skin in the game. And this Mm -hmm. is where teams are invincible. When they are all singing from the same hymn sheet with a shared set of values, they can verbalize with a a set of tools that they use so that when there's a problem, they have a, a kind of way of working through it. There isn't something that someone else has thought of and then said, hey, do this. I read it in a book. It's really good. But it's actually something that everyone is committed to. When there's a team where the leader is mentored by the person who's got the lowest status and that moves around every month. I mean, there's there's so much you can do, but the whole point is it's got to be done altogether. And I think a lot of the time I see teams where people are invited, invited into being vulnerable, but not the person inviting them is not doing that. So, and it, and it works both ways. Like if you're a leader and you're saying to everyone, hey, you should, uh, you know, make sure that you take care of your own personal well-being, but you're sending emails at half 11 at night. Well, you're saying one thing and doing something else. You're out, you're out of whack. And that, that kind of, that's a lack of authenticity that makes people nervous. So what we say mm. and what we do, what we think and what we feel have to be on the same line so that if you're a leader, so that you can encourage people to say, look, I am here come and step into the arena with me. Not, that's a really good arena. You should try it in there. <laughs> and it's it's really hard because it's like, you know, you don't have a choice to get on with the people you live with or like during lockdown, I spent a lot of time with the people that I married and gave birth to who were great people, but, you know, I wasn't planning on spending two years in the same room as them. I hadn't prepared. For <laughs> but, but as a team, as a, as a team, when we describe ourselves as team and part, we had to say, so what is it that allows each one of them, what, what is it that allows our voices to be heard individually? What is it that we can pay into the kind of group element that will make us really make us shine as a group? And, and that was a really interesting journey, you know, with a couple of teenagers and a husband. But I tell you what, absolutely amazing. And that was enforced. <laughs> but I think if you opt into the complexity of getting dirt under your fingernails when it comes to what makes amazing teams, mm-hmm. and some of you, the resources you have, I mean, some of the resources you have are just amazing. But it does take, you know, 
it does take bravery. Bravery is required. So it's it's a mm. case of how committed are you? And I, there's lots of companies that you know will will talk about it, but not put themselves in the position of it. And I, I just I feel for them because they're missing out. They're missing out on the 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 amazing capacity for success that starting with vulnerability brings. It's hard so, though. It's hard. Yeah. So, so, so Team Bidec did okay during the pandemic. I will tell you, we had our, we had our moments because we had the four of us, we had, we had the dog. Um, and there were days when it felt really, really cramped in here. Mm. And so I would get in my car and I would go drive to the parking lot of the Rite Aid, which is our local pharmacy. And I just would sit there and I'd work. Yeah. And I thought, I just, you know, because I, I, I was not used to working in this environment with these people who aren't the best colleagues in the world. And all of a sudden I'm in, right. I'm in lockdown with them, but, but what it, what it actually did show me is that we can and should blend these worlds a little bit more, Mm. that it is okay to kind of show to your, to your point the background without yes. blurring it out without right that that it is okay if you're comfortable that when the dog comes in when the husband yells at the child and you're on a podcast and you've got to say I'm podcasting that it is okay because it shows that human element yeah. mm. and you know it, it's something that you, you talked about skillsoft which I thank you you know the the things that we bring but there's something that I've advocated for since I joined skillsoft that I love about what we do is that learning applies to us as whole people, right? It doesn't just address yeah. Yeah. those hard, durable job-related skills. And you can get those. You can get your technical skills here. But rather, learning canon should be something that that nourishes you and that you can apply to all facets of your life. So, so yeah, we need those technical skills. But if we think about being human first, you also need skills like confidence, emotional intelligence, resilience, yes. and that ability to understand that life is complicated and messy and it's not always perfect and it is okay to be vulnerable. So I know you have a background in education and teaching. I'd love to hear your thoughts on this idea of developing ourselves, not just in one facet, but really as how do we take care of that whole person? Yeah, I think in the first instance that people we need to stop distinguishing between, we need to stop saying things like soft skills. <laughs> yes. I don't like that. I don't skill. like that term. It's, yeah. You're, it's human skills and you are a human and it's quite handy if you've got this <laughs> way of working before you do. I, like, I know there's Maslow's hierarchy of needs. I've got Jaslow's hierarchy of needs. And it, it's, I, I just like to simplify oh, yeah, stuff I, it. You have to tell me what those are. Okay, I need to know Jaslow's hierarchy of needs. <laughs> it's really terrible. So Jaslow's, it's like if you're going to bring out the best in someone, obviously they need to be safe. They need to have like psychological safety and offers in the workplace that well, that's missing the psychological safety. So that's really important. Then they need to be well. They need to have ways of managing. They have to participate in their own well-being. You can't just let someone else tell you it's enforced yoga time. Let's get our kit on. And then the last one is you have to be seen. If you are safe, well, and seen, then there can be difference made. And I think that's the bit we miss off a lot of the time, the being seen element, or it's the thing that we're most afraid of. And for me, when we think about the whole person, we're always kind of trying to hide behind the things that are easily measured. Um, Seth Godin talks about real skills. Simon Sinek calls them human skills. I, I personally just feel that 
I would rather have someone who had resilience, knew how to lead, knew how to reframe, had mm-hmm. had reinvention down. I'd hire someone in a minute like that over having all of the skills that we've worked so hard at. I'm not dismissing them. They're important. Right. But come the next global pandemic or whatever happens, I want to have a team that are A-class reframers. I want them to be able to take responsibility for what they're responsible for and nothing else. I, that, that's such a such a distressing thing when we're all trying to be responsible for things we've got no control over. We, we can't control it, but we obsess about it all the time, even though it's something we can't affect. I want them to be able to reach out and not have this whole thing around, I'll do it myself, or I don't want to look weak. You look weak mm. because you're not asking anyone for help. You look like, why you are the only human on the planet who can do everything on their own? If that was true, the government would be doing tests on you. They'd have your brain out to have a look at how come you're so special. You're, you're a regular human. Stop. Awesome by choice, not by accident. You do the work, but you're a regular human, so just own that. And then the reframe thing. These are my three hours of reinvention that I, I, I just kind of, this is what I've looked at my own life and thought, how am I not a statistic? How am I not dead? These are the things that I have, that I've worked on. And the reframe thing is the time it takes between like falling into a hole and getting back up. Because it's not like you're never going to make a mistake. Mm-hmm. It's not like you're never going to fail. But the time between failing and going again it's getting that as short as possible. And for me, that used to be years. Something would go wrong and I would I would be knocked out for years. I got it down to months, weeks, days, hours. I can do it in minutes and I'm going for seconds. And, and it's like reframing after an argument, after a disagreement, reframing after a job that you didn't get or a failure. Mm-hmm. And I don't mean resigning yourself to like, oh, well, if I don't laugh, I'll cry. I mean, accepting renewed hope. I mean, like actively being intentional about how you process stuff. I, I look at myself and I, I spent a lot of time forest gumping my way through life, just, you know, hoping for the best, hoping. You, my main strategy was hope. And and <laughs> and it's exhausting. It's mm. exhausting. And it's not, it's, I haven't worked this hard to live some sort of mediocre life. So the human skills, the, the important things, those are the things that I choose to invest in, into, into my kind of more than my intellectual capital, you know, my spiritual capital, my relational capital. That, that's, that's where I place my investment, because if I've got those, I can always generate financial capital. But if I, if I focus my, if I zoom in my focus just on that and miss out on the other things, I, d- I don't want to, don't want to get to the end of my life and, you know, look back and, and say what a lot of people say. I wish I hadn't, I wish I'd had the courage to be myself. I wish I'd spent more time with my family. I've done a pre-mortem on my life. I'm like, not a post-mortem. I'm looking at it now thinking, mm. what do I, what do I want my hundred year old self to be saying? And I write that script and then that's a script I choose to live to. But a lot of that script is about being able to say yes when it's right for me, being able to say no when it isn't. And also on that script is making out with my husband more, which is my new no. every year. It's a good one. I'd encourage everyone to do it. But it's 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 telling your own story. It's not letting someone else write your story for you, saying this is what you should be like, this is what you should do. That that's what I, I get excited about with Skillsoft because you I don't think you always know that you're doing it, but you encourage people to pick up the pen and take ownership of their own story. And that that is unique and significant in being human first. It really is. So I love, I, I love that. I, I, um, 
wrote something called the stand. It was part of an exercise oh. that I had to do. And it was, you know, what is your stand? And, and you know, you're, you're talking to yourself from a, a point in the future and you're mm-hmm. looking back and what have you accomplished between that point and this one? And I, I wrote it. And as I wrote it, I realized that I need to make some changes because what I don't want my tombstone to read is, hey, she was a great marketer or a great writer or a great runner or that she was available 24-7. <laughs> she answered right? every email. She answered every email within moments. Instead, I wanted to read, she cared immensely. Yes. If nothing else, that's what I want my tombstone to read. And I realized that there is a lot of work I have to do to get there because right now I think it would read, She's available twenty four seven. Again, right. but I can I can do I can do that work. Um, but I I really do love that, and I also have to tell you, you're going to laugh. But I reference, and you can probably listen to it in every single podcast. I reference Maslow's hierarchy all the time, and I'm going to stop, and I'm going to reference <laughs> Jaslow's hierarchy, and I'm gonna I will credit you, but I really I'm going to shift the script a bit. I love that. I love that. It's, well, it's a thing. Well that is good. It's- <laughs> it's a thing now. It really is. Um, so you know, I promise I promised I promised people laughing. I really did. And you know, I think people who are listening to us would say, you both sound like confident women, right? Mm, you're you're yeah. here, you yeah. sound confident, you're having a good time. But I think that, you know, when we talk about things like we did in the beginning about imposter syndrome, I think the prevalent narrative is that women are more often affected and feel less confident in the workplace than their male counterparts. Mm. And in this, um, in this podcast that I did with a a Pluma coach, Beth Egan, we talked about people often falsely equate confidence with competence and that that disproportionately impacts women. And and, uh, as you and I are talking today, um, we've just released some new research, the Skillsoft 2021 Mm -hmm. women in tech report. And, you know, in this study, we focused on women who work in technology, and we learned so much that even still, even today as we sit here in 2021, women feel they must work harder to prove themselves and demonstrate con- competence. And what we heard repeatedly from the people we surveyed is that they want things like professional development. They want training opportunities. They want to be given the chance to excel, but they aren't always seen and heard. Mm. And I think about this, and I'm like, oh my gosh, that's how does this still exist? And so Jess, how do we create workplace cultures where people feel confident, where they feel brave, um, where they feel like they belong? And, and you know, is there something we can do to address this gender inequity that I think still exists? Yeah, yeah it's, it's a narrative. I feel like there are four stories going on in, in all our lives at the same mm-hmm. time. And the first story is the stuff that we tell people about us and they know. And that can come across as I'm confident because you're Mm -hmm. supposed to be able to sell yourself. You've got to tell the truth about yourself. And it's not bragging if it's true. You know, it's only bragging if it's not true. So so there's that. And people feel differently about being able to tell the truth about to the world. Right. And then there's a story you tell yourself. And there's the first problem that those stories are out of sync. Yeah. That we we tell everyone else we're competent. And then in the morning when we're getting ready for work, we look in the mirror and go, oh, you're fat, you're ugly, you're going gray. And we give ourselves that sort of pep talk to go to work. So it's, it's two different narratives. And, and then there's another story about the stuff that people say about us. And, and the problem with that story is that people have always they've got their own they've got their own journey that they are adding to that story so people 
say all sorts of things about me. They make all sorts of assumptions about me when I walk in a room. You know, they see that I'm a woman, that I'm brown, that I look like Beyonce. No, they don't see that ever, but I live in hope. But, you know, they and they make up these stories about that. Well, I can't, I can't be all of their stories. So I do me and then if it, if it, you know, it either fits or it doesn't, but I can't, there's no point in me trying. So right. the, I can't take control of the stories that other people tell about me. And, and, but the last story is the unknown story. And that's the story we have absolute control of because that's a story that we haven't written yet and we get to write. So when it comes to a culture in the workplace, I, I firmly believe that this is the tone is set by hierarchically by the leader and the tone is, is seen. People, you know, what I love to do with a team is sit down and say, right, tell me all the unwritten rules in the workplace. Tell me all the things that haven't been said, but you know it's a rule. And then go back to the leader and say, here's the list of things that you are enforcing without knowing it. Because there's so much, because we're looking at things from different viewpoints. And, and I think if you look at the history of women in the workplace, there was this kind of, you can come if you're the same as everyone else. You're accepted if you're the same. So basically you're accepted if you can be like the men. And, mm -hmm. and like in World War II, when women in Britain first started doing men's jobs, it was like, well, you know, how are we going to, you're going to have to be like the men because there was no schema for a woman who worked. Right. But sometimes today it feels like despite the massive evidence and data, there's still very, some people do not have a scheme <laughs> for how women can work. But it, but saying to women, okay, you've got to be braver. It, sometimes it's a bit like telling the the, the hound, to, to the fox to stop being chased by the hound. Right. You know, it, there's got to be a, um, a standpoint where everybody says, so what's it like to be on the other side of where I am? And that's where you, you meet people in empathy, not sympathy. Sympathy is useless. Sympathy is what you say. When you say, when someone says, oh, my dad died, you go, oh, I'm so sorry. That's kind of British for, oh, I don't know what to say. Don't talk to me. This is really uncomfortable. It, sorry is useless. Empathy is powerful. I don't know how you feel. I don't know what you're going through, but I will stand with you. That is powerful as a statement. Then the next thing is engage. That's when, when you've when you've bought, you've garnered loyalty because you've stood with someone, then you can engage in a conversation that is where everyone can stay neutral and just get curious about what it's like to be where they are. Like the, the, the you know, the feeling that like, I want the training, but I feel like no one sees me and I don't know what, how much noise do I have to make before somebody says, oh, would you like right. to come on the call? You know, it's like, we've actually got to just, what's it like on the other side? What, what is it like for you? And then you can enroll someone into a different way of thinking. But I think what we try and do is go for enrollment first. We say, well, you should just be like this and you look like you're mm -hmm. like this. So everything's fine. And it's like, you, that's a bit lazy. You've got to do the work. The empathy yeah. and engage parts are really important. And, and I, this, why this piece of research is so important because who would have said that, that women in technology who are already in an industry where they're outnumbered, who would have said that they would have come up with those actual specific things? We could make assumptions about what their story is, but actually it's like, you know what? What I feel is this. And, and being able to hear that means that we can start making tiny shifts in the direction of making sure we're not missing out on talent because that's the mm. cost. We are, miss, we are missing out on talent by not giving a space for people to get curious about what it's like not to be them, to be different to them. And it's it just shuts down conversations. And I think in particular... I lo I'd love to do a piece of research around the unwritten rules that women feel and that men feel and see if they're different in the same workplace, Ooh. you know, to see if there's, that there's a felt kind of difference in there. That would be interesting.
But I, but I think it's around stories. I think it's the stories we tell ourselves, the story others tell. It's all around stories. And if it's just a story, then we can all choose to write a better story. We can all choose because we're going to be we're going to be talking about this time forever. We're going to be talking about that research forever. So what I don't want to do is say to my daughter's daughter, "Oh yeah, this is how it was when I was at work, and now this is how it is for you." Because then what? What was the point of me? What did yeah. I do if I didn't engage in some courageous conversation about how it can be better? I want to write these unwritten rules. I want to write this research with mm. you. So you tell me when. Uh, <laughs> I love it. No, I really do. I, I wonder what people would say, though, Michelle. I wonder if it would be because the unwritten rule thing is huge. I mean, people oh. say stuff and leaders are heartbroken when they when they see it. I've done this exercise so many times. They're like, what? I never said you got to stay till seven. It's like, but something you're doing is illustrating that. And it's not it's more than one person that's saying it. So you know, we're giving, and I wonder if it's different, even different, like, is it different for leaders, different for middle managers? It would be interesting to find out, wouldn't it? So here's, here's a, here's a note to all listeners. If you are interested in doing a workshop with jazz that we're <laughs> going to put together, and I'm just making this up on the fly yeah, let's about let's, let's write the unwritten rule or let, let's go through this exercise of let's figure out what the unwritten rules are for our organizations, because with that insight, yes, it's probably really, really hard to hear but ultimately, when we know what's happening, we can we can impact change. We yes. can't do it if we don't yes. know. Mm. Mm. It's true. Oh my gosh, this is this has been so much fun. I I told you, I promise you that we would get candid. I promise that we would get vulnerable, and I promise that we would have a bit of a belly laugh. I did not expect a, as big a belly laugh, and I'm thrilled for that. And I love this conversation. I I wish we could keep going, but I do have one final question. Okay. If you've listened to the podcast, it is something I've asked every single guest since I started this. This was my pandemic era or my pandemic thing, right? So we started this podcast and it's a three-parter, just so you know, um, in case you need to write it down. But, you know, as we reflect on the past 20 months, we've all had very different experiences when it comes to the impact the pandemic has had, some good, some bad, um, some tragic. Um, so. Yeah. So what I ask is three things. What have you learned about yourself during this time? How are you applying what you've learned in the flow of your work, in the flow of life? And then the third and final thing is, what advice would you share with others based on that? So what have you learned? What have you applied? And what advice would you give? I have learned that freedom is not freedom to me. It is chaos. And the beauty of constraint <laughs> has just leveled up my life. I mean, I, I lost my entire business, obviously, when the pandemic came, no events. I'm a speaker, no events, no work. So I but I speak about resilience. I'm not going to sit here, am I lamenting? I was like, all right, reframe. What do my people need? And I put together like a manifesto, new rules and, and made all these videos. And I knew I could live for a couple of months without worrying that I, I didn't you know, have anything to eat. But what I found over time is that the 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 no that the complete freedom of the day was actually exhausting to me. Mm -hmm. And what I needed was constraint. I had too much constraint before. I was traveling all over the world. I made ridiculous decisions. I said yes too many times. And and that was ridiculous constraint. But constraint where it's like, you know what? Let's like you did. Let, we're gonna do a podcast and we're gonna do it during lockdown and we're gonna start it now. And I don't know if it's gonna work. Let's go for it anyway. It's it's the constraint has given me so much 
I don't know whether it's discipline or discretion. I don't know what it is, but it's just giving mm. me a place to fill up the small box that I gave myself rather than rattle around in a big box trying to right. trying to make a noise. So that's that's the main thing I've learned about myself, which I am excited about. I've applied that by, you know, I things like I do time blocking. So I have me, me Mondays where Monday mornings, I'm just going to create my social media content and do my own. I'm going to procrastinate. I give myself Monday morning to do that. And I have freedom Fridays. So on Friday afternoons, I, if I'm not having a cocktail with my husband by three o'clock, something's wrong, you know? So <laughs> I, I, I put this in. Uh, what I did is I designed my whole week, my dream week. I'm like, if I could set my own rules, imagine oh. if I was the boss of my own life, <laughs> you know, if I could, uh, what would my best week look like? And it was like Monday, I would, you know, get into it. Friday afternoon, I would just stop and celebrate. Five o'clock every day, me and my husband make ourselves available to each other in the kitchen. And for that hour, one of us cooks, the other one might be reading or whatever, but we are available to each other. And and so I've put these kind of constraints in place, which feel frustrating sometimes. Like, oh, if I just send one more email, I'm like, no, the commitment to myself is more important than that email. And so that's helped me build this way of being, this intentional way of being which stops me from forest gumping through the day Mm -hmm. and getting to the end and collapsing into bed like an exhausted lab rat at half past eight. You know, it's, it's eradicates that. So I've created this constraint that I'm able to work within. Um, And my advice for other people, I mean, I don't know that this would work for everyone because I think I, you know, there are people that are more disciplined than me, but I would say that if you, if you, if you need help, then make a request because I think if I'd asked sooner, I identified sooner that I was I was busy and harassed. Now I'm busy, but I'm not harassed. And right. I didn't ask for help because I didn't want I did I was scared of what people would think of me if they knew that I didn't have it all together. So I didn't ask for help. So if you need help, make a request. Find someone you trust and someone who's who fights for your highest good and make a request. And if you don't need help, then go offer it to someone else. I wish someone had got busy up in my life and gone, let me tell you about yourself, Jazz. You're going to burn out and you're going to be in an early grave. <laughs> I wish someone had just sat me down and right, listen, you're, you're eating too much sugar. You're going to be diabetic. I just I just need some. I mean, obviously, maybe with a bit more kindness, but I, I respond well to a short, sharp shock. A kind kick up the bottom is something that I respond quite well to. So, so my advice is either go looking for a kind kick up the bottom or give someone a kind kick up the bottom, but get involved in kind kicking of the rear end. That would be my advice. Oh my God. I don't think there's a better place to end this (laughs) podcast than that. I mean, talk about a powerful episode. We've gone from vulnerability to kind kick in the bottom and everywhere (laughs) in between. Thank you. Thank you so much, Jazz. This has been amazing. And I needed it this morning because I wasn't having the best day. And I will tell you, this has been a reframe for me because I know the the rest of my day is going to get so much better after this. Fantastic. It, it, It is a genuine honor I'm glad that I worked through the little bit of sick in the back of my throat, the fear. <laughs> it's a genuine honor to have spent this time with you and and to just be part of the Skillsoft family is one of my lockdown highlights. So thank you. For oh me. my gosh. I, I love that. I love that. It's true. It's true. Yeah. Well, then we got to Then we got to thank our listeners because they tune in to this in every episode. We unleash our edge together. And you know, on behalf of the entire Skillsoft team and Jazz, 
I, you know, we want to encourage you to keep learning, keep growing. And in light of today's conversation, when was the last time you took a moment to pause and ask yourself, who am I really? And then based on that answer, is this a version of yourself that you've allowed to, to be revealed to others? Or is it just the version of you that you show at home? Are you someone different in the workplace? And I would say, how can you try and, and do a better job of uniting those? And I think part of what we all need to collectively remember coming out of this particular episode, we are good enough. Mm. So I'm Michelle BB. This is The Edge. And until next time, be well. <laughs>